1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Even through a 15-year civil war, Lebanon never defaulted on its debts. Now, that's looking dangerously close. As the International Monetary Fund swoops in to talk restructuring, we take a look at what's behind the deep economic crisis. And if you want to attend Norway's Ice Music Festival, you better dress warmly. It averages minus 10 degrees Celsius. We pay a visit to hear the haunting compositions performed on instruments made from ice. First up, though. In 2016, Britain voted to leave the European Union.
2: Let June the 23rd go down in our history as our Independence Day!
1: It was a choice that could yet lead to independence of a different kind.
3: A UK inside the EU will no longer be a reality. It is time to win Scotland's independence.
1: Since the Brexit vote, the question of Scotland's future has grabbed the headlines. But as Ireland's parliament meets today, for the first time since a general election earlier this month, another secession is no longer
4: as unlikely as it once seemed. For a long time, Irish unification was seen as a possibility but not a particularly realistic one. Hamish Birrell is our public policy correspondent. That has changed over the past few years and there's a number of factors that have come together to mean that grown numbers of people think it could now even happen in the next decade or so. A united Ireland might be on the horizon after a hundred years of division. One place to start with a story is the early 1920s, when the island of Ireland was split in two, creating a mainly Protestant north and a mainly Catholic south. The southern part of the island then gained independence from the United Kingdom. It wasn't, however, a particularly stable settlement for the north. And for the last four decades of the 20th century, there was a lot of instability in Northern
0: Ireland. I'm a free Protestant, and all the lying about me will not stop me in my campaign in Ulster to keep Ulster out of the south of Ireland.
4: The Troubles were a particularly bloody period of history. Around 3,500 people died. At times, and in parts of Northern Ireland, there was a real sense of everyday conflict. There were bombings on the street and horribly regular shootings. At its root, it was a struggle over the constitutional status of Northern Ireland, whether it should be part of the United Kingdom or whether it should be part of the Republic of Ireland. That came to an end in 1998.
5: Today is about the promise of a bright future. A day when we hope a line can be drawn under the bloody past. We must all seize the Opportunity.
4: Representatives from the major Northern Irish political parties signed the Good Friday Agreement along with the Irish government and the British government. Since then, there has been a period of relative peace in Northern Ireland with only a small number of casualties each year. The Good Friday Agreement
1: didn't end the debate about the unification of Ireland. It merely transferred it to the political
4: world. And today, the notion of a united Ireland is a growing possibility. Probably the most important factor is Brexit. Brexit was voted for by a majority in the United Kingdom in 2016. However, most people in Northern Ireland voted against leaving the European Union. And nationalists who favor the idea, at least in theory, of a united Ireland were more likely than most to be against the idea. So this is something that has happened against their wishes. And it's something which has upset the relatively fragile status quo which has developed since the Good Friday Agreement. And on top of that, you have a couple of other things which have raised the possibility of the unification of Ireland. One is the ongoing story of the demographic shift in Northern Ireland. There are now probably more Catholics than Protestants. Not every Catholic will be a nationalist and not every Protestant will be a unionist. But Catholics are more likely to be nationalists and Protestants are more likely to be unionists. And so many people think the 2021 census, which will likely confirm the fact that we are now more Catholics, could be something of a turning point in Northern Ireland. And then on top of that, the most recent development is the unexpected success of Sinn Féin in the Irish election a few weeks ago. Irish nationalist Sinn Féin are demanding to be part of the next Irish government after the left-wing party unexpectedly secured the most votes. In an election. Sinn Féin has a deeply troubling past. From the 1970s on, it was the political wing of the Irish Republican Army, who are more commonly known as the IRA, and they are a paramilitary organization which wanted to push the British state out of Northern Ireland. In the Irish election, they received a larger share of votes, and although it's not yet clear whether they will form part of a the government, their success will push the issue of unification up the agenda. And so even if there were a popular will
1: for reunification, for that process to begin, what is the process?
4: We have to go back to the Good Friday Agreement, which very clearly sets out the process. It stipulates that if at any time it appears likely to the British Secretary of State for Northern Ireland that a majority of people would back unification, then Britain must call a referendum and honour its result. The most difficult thing is how to determine whether it appears likely. And there's a number of different ways this could be done. The most obvious would be to look at opinion polls However, you'd probably have to take into account a range of different factors, including the demographics and electoral results. But one of the other considerations must be that this is a question with an
1: extremely bloody history, right? Is there a sense that even opening this discussion would reopen old wounds, would make matters messy?
4: It's incredibly hard to judge the risk of violence. For what it's worth, the police service in Northern Ireland suggests that paramilitary organizations are kind of much, much weaker than they used to be. But certainly British politicians worry about the possibility for violence, as do many of their Irish counterparts. The difficulty is if there is a rise in support for the idea of unification, and if the government in Westminster refuses to recognise that, then that would also be destabilising. So suppose it happens and a referendum is
1: called, and that is now, I suppose, a referendum on the possibility of Northern Ireland rejoining the EU. But there there must be many bigger issues also to consider here. These are two functionally mostly separate nations?
4: Yeah, of course. One of the big factors for why this moved up the political agenda is because the EU has made very clear that if the North did join the Republic, then they would automatically re-enter the European Union. And the government's own estimates of the impact of a trade deal with the European Union suggest that Northern Ireland would be worse off than the United Kingdom as a whole, which would be worse off than the status quo. So that's obviously an enormously attractive proposition to many people. But there are a huge range of things to consider, one of which would be Northern Ireland's fiscal deficit – Its tax intake at the moment is only enough to cover around two thirds of public spending and Westminster makes up the rest. So under unification, it is likely that the Irish government would be able to cover some of that. They'd also receive uh, additional funding in all likelihood from the European Union. But even taking that into account, there would probably still be spending cuts, which is a kind of tough prospect for many people in Northern Ireland where public services are in pretty bad shape. And then beyond that, you have huge questions of identity and important questions about the constitutional arrangements in Northern Ireland.
1: And there are certain echoes here, I suppose, with Scotland in the sense that Scotland, too, voted to stay in the EU, whereas the UK as a whole, as we know, did not. And that has driven a push in Scotland for talks of another secession referendum and so on. Do you think all of this talk taken together speaks to a very different United Kingdom in the years to come?
4: I think we're certainly entering into a very... Turbulent decade for the United Kingdom. If there was a vote in favour of independence in Scotland, that would also have implications for Northern Ireland. A United Kingdom consisting just of England, Northern Ireland, and Wales begins to look a bit incoherent, and that's not a fatal flaw for a state, but it is a serious one. One person I spoke to in Dublin suggested that unification is kind of like the pursuit of happiness, it's not something you should pursue directly. It's something that only ensues from a position of harmony and peace. For the time being, only Sinn Féin is really pushing for a unification process to start now. But the idea of unification is no longer the Republican fantasy it once was. Hamish, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me.
1: Lebanon is saddled with crippling debts and is on the brink of default. It's suffering through its worst economic crisis since the Civil War. And the problems are coming to a head. Yesterday, some of the country's dollar-denominated bonds had their worst day on record.
5: You walk down the street in Beirut and on almost every city block, you hear snippets of conversation about banks and dollars and money. Greg Carlstrom is our Middle East correspondent, based in Beirut. The problem for both businesses and individuals right now is that whatever money you have in the bank, you can't access it. There are unofficial capital controls in place in Lebanon. Each bank, in some cases each branch, makes up its own withdrawal limits. And so for many Lebanese, this has become a weekly ritual. You go down to the bank, you take a number, you queue for hours, and you find out how much of your money you'll be allowed to withdraw. Uh, And it's quite low. It's maybe $300 a week, $200 a week, something like that. And for businesses, the unavailability of dollars has made it very difficult, if not impossible, to pay for imports, to pay
1: suppliers. The crisis was one reason mass protests erupted last October, turmoil that prompted the resignation of the prime minister. Now a new government is in place, and today it's meeting with a team of experts from the International Monetary Fund.
5: The IMF is in Lebanon today as a possible first step towards bailing out a country that is teetering on the brink of default. Lebanon is struggling to cope with a public debt that is now more than 150% of GDP, which is one of the highest debt to GDP ratios in the world. And it has some difficult decisions to make in the coming weeks about whether or not to repay that debt or whether to restructure or default.
1: And how likely is default then to your mind?
5: Lebanon has never defaulted on its debt before, even during the war. And it's a point of pride for many policymakers and economic officials in the country. But on the other hand, the situation has never been quite this bleak. The concern is that Lebanon simply may not have the foreign currency reserves to repay this debt. Now, the problem is about two-thirds of Lebanon's debt is held by local creditors, specifically local banks. And so the worry is that a restructuring or a default, in addition to hurting the government's credit rating would also decapitalize the entire banking sector. It would destroy banks, which are a pillar of the Lebanese economy. And then, of course, another chunk of this debt is held by foreign creditors. And the concern there is that if the government wanted to restructure, it may find itself tied up in court for years with creditors who take legal action against it. So how did this turn into such a crisis, the worst since the country's civil war? Well, there are two main reasons Lebanon is in this situation. One of them is to sustain this currency peg. Since the 1990s, the Lebanese pound has been fixed at about 1500 on the dollar. To sustain that, the central bank has needed ever larger amounts of foreign currency. And so it set up this convoluted system, which the head of the central bank calls financial engineering, by which the central bank borrows money from commercial banks. It pays them above interest loans on maybe a one-year certificate of deposit, Uh, And it uses those dollars to sustain the currency. But in effect, what this has become is a pyramid scheme where the central bank is borrowing ever larger amounts and now simply does not have enough hard currency to repay its obligations. The other issue is that Lebanon is a staggeringly corrupt country and billions of dollars have gone missing from the government's budget. Billions of dollars have been wasted. And the situation has gotten worse since mid-October when we started to see widespread protests across the country against exactly this sort of corruption and poor governance. Obviously, that's hurt tourism, that's hurt other sectors of the economy. The unrest has diminished somewhat since then, but that's also been a contributing
1: factor. And so how's the government handling that unrest amid this financial crisis?
5: Well, for the first couple of months of the unrest, the government wasn't doing anything because there was no government. Back in October, the prime minister, Saad Hariri, resigned. And for the next few months, we went through a long period of horse trading while Lebanese politicians tried to name a new prime minister and tried to appoint a new cabinet. It was finally seated in January, the new government. It was billed as a technocratic government in the sense that many of the ministers are not members of the traditional political parties that have wielded power here since then. But many of them were appointed by or put forward by these parties, so there's a a widespread belief that they're still beholden to the same sort of corrupt class of politicians that drove this country into this situation in the first place. We haven't heard much yet from the government in the way of specifics. In fairness, they've only been in office for a few weeks. But we really don't have a great sense yet of how they plan to approach this economic crisis. I think the first test will be this Eurobond payment that's due on March 9th, whether the government decides to meet its obligations and repay it, or whether it decides to effectively hold on to its dwindling foreign currency reserves and use those for needed imports of food and fuel and other things.
1: But for the moment, the government is meeting with some potential new creditors in the form of the IMF, certainly not its first trip to the region. Are there any lessons you can draw from the IMF's previous programs in the Middle East?
5: For now, the Lebanese government says it's not interested in taking a loan from the IMF because that loan would, of course, entail conditions and reforms that it would have to make. But uh, many economists think that by the end of the year, that may become inevitable because the country simply will not have enough money to import the goods that it needs. And so, yes, you can look at countries like Egypt and Jordan and Tunisia, all of which have received IMF programs over the past decades, and all of them have received praise for making some fairly difficult fiscal and monetary reforms. Egypt floated its currency, it's cut subsidies, Jordan has slashed fuel subsidies, Tunis has raised taxes, and all of these things have helped to tame unsustainable deficits – The problem is they haven't done the sort of structural reforms that might make these countries more attractive places to do business, which are the sorts of reforms that Lebanon sorely needs. It's a country that has almost no industrial sector, that exports very little, runs a very steep trade deficit every year. It's a country that is really starved for investment, but can't attract that because
1: of a poor business climate. So do you think that Lebanon can dig itself out of this hole without the IMF's help?
5: Well, I think a lot of Lebanese are still hoping that someone outside the country will step in to save them. This is typically what happens when Lebanon gets into economic trouble, a wealthy Gulf state or perhaps a European state steps in to bail them out. There's not much appetite for that right now. The Gulf states have little interest in supporting Lebanon. European powers offered the country $11 billion in loans two years ago if it only made a few fairly simple reforms. It hasn't done that yet. And so there's not much appetite for bailing out the country. So Lebanon may find itself in a position where the IMF is truly the lender of last resort.
1: Greg, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Last night, Michael Bloomberg made his debate debut among Democratic presidential contenders. His rivals had their knives out, attacking him as an arrogant billionaire. Our new podcast, Checks and Balance, is about the 2020 election and the road to power in America. In this week's episode, our journalists will look at Mr. Bloomberg's bid to buy his way to the presidency and at the history of money in America's politics. It's out tomorrow. Check out Checks and Balance wherever you get your podcasts. year, next to a glacial lake in Finnsen, Norway, the Ice Music Festival takes place. It doesn't just get its name from the February weather. All the instruments, from the drums to the horns, harps and chimes, are made from ice.
3: You can see and hear nature when you play ice music.
1: Maria Skranes sings with the
3: festival. It's very special. and The sound of ice, it's like nothing else. It's really beautiful and it's it's kind of nature's voice. I'm not the soulist, the ice is the soulist and I'm kind of the back backing band.
2: The ice music festival was the idea of a Norwegian percussionist called Terje Isungset. Simon Broughton reports on culture for The Economist and this year visited the festival. It takes place in an amazing location. It's by a frozen lake and in view of a glacier. There's no road access and you can only reach it on the train. So it's, it's quite an exclusive place where they build a small stage and an amphitheatre out, out of the ice itself.
1: And, and how does one go about making instruments out of ice?
2: Basically, in the festival, there are two sorts of ice instruments. There are sort of hybrid ones like an ice guitar, an ice bass and an ice harp. And they have regular strings and uh, uh, like a regular guitar neck. But the body of the instrument is made out of ice. But the most interesting instruments are the ones that are really pure ice, where the ice itself is, is sounding. So there are ice horns and trumpets which you're blowing through an isophon, as they call it, which is a sort of ice marimba. And the, the bars of ice are absolutely tuned to, to particular notes, and they sound fantastically clear and pure. I mean, it sounds like a cliché, but it sounds amazingly natural. So why is it that Mr Isung-set created this? I think it's very much about natural music in a natural landscape. There's something he obviously quite enjoys about this precarious environment where the weather is absolutely the boss.
3: Weather is really the master of everything. You have the glacier as a backdrop, or I would say the melting glacier, and it's 99% pure nature.
2: I think slightly ahead of the game, Isung Set felt that climate change was a real issue and wanted to draw attention to it. So it's always been, in a way, the message behind the festival. But uh, as, as he's very aware, it's suddenly become a much more pointed and a much more urgent message, and people are much more tuned into it now than they were.
3: I've seen a clearly change in interviews when talking to people, their interests. People are now a lot more aware of climate change, a lot more aware of taking care of nature, in fact. It came a little bit late.
1: And so do you think that that, that kind of resonance with the climate change message is kind of drowning out the art, this, this expression of, of pure nature?
2: I think Isen is very subtle in the way he presents his message, really. He's much more about uh, doing something creative and showing people the power of music and art and the ice itself, I think this is what he's most interested
3: in doing. Still, the most important thing uh, is to be able to create music and art and to give an expression, Uh, maybe also to give an expression that is a little bit more abstract than a lot of facts or Telling people, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, you know? I believe more in that kind of message. Mm-hmm.